Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely. In a world given back to us, we are here doing another COVID-19 online learning session. This is for Philosophy 201, Ethics, and we are going to be discussing two chapters from the Paul Althaus book, The Ethics of Martin Luther. Chapter 6, Work, which is a chapter with a whopping four pages, (laughs) not even four full pages, and then Property, Business, and Economics, Chapter 7. I don't really plan on making a video or audio session for Chapter 8, The State. Um, and I I may just send something out to students, too, that they don't have to bother as much with reading that. We usually don't cover that so much in class. Uh, Altos gets a, a little volkish there, and so... <laughs> We'll uh, maybe just shy away from that. So this should wrap up our um, Althaus sessions. So students, you should just be uploading notes through Chapter 7 um, through these. And note that we are taking two chapters together in this audio session. Uh, listeners, we're hoping that you're getting something out of these uh, kind of glimpses into uh, our courses at Wisconsin Lutheran College. We thank you for hopefully not unsubscribing um, as we kind of blow up your podcast feed. Um, and we hope that these will be beneficial for now and for maybe down the road for for people too. So the chapter on work is just a short chapter. And here he's just slightly differentiating work from vocation. I get the sense he's doing it largely to be able to talk about property, business, and, and economics. But when we think about vocation and work, what we mean by, by work here seems to be that uh, – Work is that which we do in order to be able to provide for ourselves and support ourselves. So vocation isn't always something that we do to be able to provide for ourselves and support ourselves. Uh, We don't mother or father to provide for ourselves uh, or support ourselves. We do that for our children. But but work, especially, we maybe sometimes can think uh, job or something that has to be done that involves toil. Uh, So... Um, Luther wrote no specific work treatise just on work, but it shows up in other places. But just some some basic things that I've outlined here that uh, for Mike and I to use. Uh, God has commanded work. Um, he commanded work uh, before the fall into <coughs> to sin. Um, he has given creation to steward it, and uh, God plans already then to use mankind. Um, to create, right, be fruitful and multiply, and to preserve his creation. Um, so work is not something that comes into the world after the fall, but it is changed uh, by the fall. But work is also the mask by which the hidden God um, provides what we need for our lives. And so um, I teach at a college and receive a paycheck, which provides for myself and for my family. Yet at the same time, God is the one who has allowed me to have that job and provides for me through it. And so that mask language of vocation can here be uh, used as well. And then as we're being reminded in this time of pandemic, we're only able to sustain ourselves through work because God adds his blessing to it. If it weren't for God's blessing and his upholding of the natural order, uh, there's no guarantee the crops would grow. Um, Christ is that which upholds all of the universe. Uh, And so we give thanks that God uses work and the economy to provide for us. But maybe, Mike, if you want to hit a little bit on uh, something that will come out, is that the the nature of work or our relation to it or our experience of it does change with the fall into sin. Um, we think especially of God saying to Adam, 
by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return um, that the ground will produce thorns and, and thistles any thought Mike about uh, the nature of work or work itself our relationship to it post fall yeah first of all the, there's going to be curses with it we, you already mentioned that but I think a good way to think about it is not so much that there's a difference in work, but there's a difference in the human being. So the human being who uh, has original righteousness before the fall is is not doesn't need to die and rise again. Already just has original righteousness, and so they already have freedom. They already have love. They They don't think about work as something that is bad. They just are. But for the Christian after the fall, there's a symbol going on there, right? A simultaneously sinner and a saint. And how does that work out in, in life? Well, it works out in the death and resurrection. So we've talked about this in other podcast uh, sessions where when I live for somebody else, I die to myself. So I die to my sinful nature um, when I don't do something selfish and I'm resurrected as a saint to take that same action and that energy or, or that decision, and I'm living for somebody else. So we're in the realm of the cross here, right? So I can look at that curse that there's going to be thorns in the field, there's going to be pain and childbearing, and it is a curse. It is a result of sin. It is a chastisement, may even go so far as to say it's a punishment in certain circumstances. It's a result of sin. But from the Christian point of view, now it's a cross. It doesn't take the pain away, but it gives it a different meaning. So we may think of like three states that a person may be in. Original righteous state before the fall. Work is just work. It has no negative connotation, right? When we use the word labor... We think we're laboring through something, or we think about labor and childbearing. It's it's almost kind of a, a negative type of has a negative connotation to it in a lot of circumstances. That would not have been the case for Adam and Eve pre-fall. After the fall, you have two options. One is where this life just stinks and it's hard and you're trying to survive and maybe you try to find some successes and maybe you have some civic righteousness where you're doing something good for other people. It's good for the community. It's good for the community means it's good for me. But there's just quite not a very good description or meaning of suffering or cross. In the post-fall world for the Christian who sees it through dying and, 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 and being resurrected, then the cross, I bear a cross for somebody else in a sinful world. This is a dying to myself and a living for somebody else. And so it's not just negative. It's not just survival. It's something that's still good. And it's a world given back to us where, where it's good. And, and I think our world kind of understands that intuitively or at least knows that it could be better. So let's go back to that word labor. Labor can have a negative connotation. I'm laboring through this. It's uh, it's it's bad. A woman goes into goes labor into and childbirth. That right. means the uh, the painful part. But if you're if you're attuned to the political situation in Minnesota, you know that the Democratic Party is called uh, 
the the farm and labor. Now I'm blanking on that. Uh, the DFL, FLD. Yeah, something like, so like the Democratic Farm and Labor. Labor, that word, we we in certain circumstances, and especially in political parties or workers' movement, try to resurrect. Excuse the pun <laughs> for this word, right? Like Martin Luther King Jr. is going to say, "All labor has dignity," right? So labor and dignity. See the words that he's putting together there. Uh, labor is a good thing and a necessary thing, and it's something that should be appreciated and in the political uh, system uh, respected, right? So we understand that work in its nature is good. It is good. It's only because of this unjust and unfallen world. And I think a Christian has a better sense of being able to redeem labor because of that death and resurrection model, that sinful nature thinks that labor is bad. So Luther would go so far as to kind of say, in this situation, the old Adam, and this is more Gustav Wingren than it is uh, Luther, but I look at you, my neighbor, and you're a nuisance to me. You are somebody that makes my life more difficult. You make an easy job laborious. Um, or I'm going to use you as a customer or a client for my gain, even though there may be something that you gain from it. You lose I, the neighbor relationship. I still see you as a means to an end. <clears throat> Wherefore, the, the Christian, um, and specifically the saint, uh, looks at the neighbor as a delight, somebody to love. And so then labor becomes something less. It, it, yeah, it's, it's still laborious in this sinful world, but in itself is not good because I see it through the lens of vocation and I see it through the lens as love. I primarily see it as love, which is a good thing, rather than labor and its negative connotations. Yeah, and I think just a couple of things that we can kind of move to property business and economics because he's tied together. Um, one of the things that's interesting in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament that comes up again and again, is when God is blessing Israel, he'll talk about, you'll plant vineyards and eat from them, right? Uh, when bad things are going to happen, it'll be, you've planted these vineyards and other people are, you've built these houses and other people are going to live in them. And so the believer will give thanks when God provides for uh, her or him through work. So think of Psalm 128. Uh, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Uh, the Christian will rejoice to have work as a means through which God provides for her or him and, uh, and see <coughs> the hand of God in that. And then just secondly, maybe, Mike, we can bring out a little bit. I mean, this is something you do um, with human flourishing. Uh, I have a question I sometimes will give students is how is work beneficial in itself and especially work as toil. And maybe if you just briefly, I want to hit on that, and then I want to hit on how the third commandment applies to work as well, that we that God realizes we need rest. But um, what is the the value of work um, or the, the wonderful blessing of work when it's something that we, I believe I started rapping when we talked about this <laughs> in another session, but that we can lose ourselves in something. You should never see labor as just a utilitarian thing. I don't think we should see anything just as a utilitarian thing. Um, that this is just something we do to survive. Um, this is what separates us from the squirrels. The squirrels are, are just doing what they need to do to survive. Like I, I've said, the squirrels never got together and said we should we should form a union, right? Oh, we, no, that sounds like a Jim Gaffigan type so, skit he would do. A, a total squirrely thing to do. Yeah. You know? uh, 
Um, <coughs> we are as human beings created in the image of God. Yes, it's uh, yes that we've lost that perfect image, but we know we're created for something better. And we rightfully look at somebody who goes through life in a subsistence way <clears throat> as, as a, a, something that's tragic, right? I'm not talking about someone who says, I'm just going to live very simply. They live simply for a different reason. So they can, they can have time to speculate. And so they don't get, uh, or, or in a monastic way, time to, you know, meditate and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> we look at that as tragic as somebody who does not live up to their full potential, which of course is all of us. So we have a desire for greatness. We have a desire for purpose. And so I think a part of human flourishing is that I have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And, um, <clears throat> so, you know, th that answers the question, by the way, why doesn't God just send us food? Why doesn't God just send us medicine? Why doesn't God just do, do this? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that he hides to be intimate with us. But I think one that we don't talk about enough is that he needs to give us purpose in this world and he elevates us beyond just a mere subsistence survival kind of living and makes us a part of his, what I call his economy of love that he is. I mean, just, just think about a mother that God uses to create out of nothing. And I'm not talking about the body, you know, there's the, you know, there's something already there. I'm talking about a soul, right? Um, a human being, um, and that elevates motherhood to a divine degree. And that's true of every vocation as well. And so to truly flourish, um, you need, yes, the staples of life. You need to work, but you also need to work not just to gain those things, but you need to work to have a purpose. And God says, I'm going to even, I'm going to one up you. It's not just going to be, you have some sort of purpose here uh, amongst your people, you know, oh, he's the senator or, oh, he's the doctor or she's the teacher or she is the, is the president or whatever. But rather it's a divine, I'm going to lift you to, as Dr. Veith says, a startling degree. I'm going to make this something divine. I'm going to make you a part, a coworker with me. And I think that that is the way that is the place where we satisfy our desire for self-esteem and for importance. And notice that we, if we don't find that, that satisfaction in a hidden backwards way where, um, I, I feed my children and this is the, this is the highest, this is the good life. This is the highest thing that I could do. And I start looking at other places like, um, how much money I get made or how many rewards I could get, or, you know, win a Nobel peace prize or whatever. That's always going to be a dead end. And that's something we kind of instinctively know, right? We're constantly telling, um, our teenagers and our young children, you know, you shouldn't care what people think, which that's impossible, of course. Or you, I always tell mine to care what people think. Yeah, absolutely. It makes life a, <laughs> a little bit better. easier to navigate. Yeah. Um, but you shouldn't find your value in your looks, right? So stop taking selfies of all, yourself all the time kind of thing. And um, we instinctively understand that that's not going to be satisfying, that there's going to be shallow. I would, I would go so far as to say, if you won a Nobel Peace Prize or a Nobel Prize 30 years in a row, that you would want 31 um, because you're created in something so much better than what this, this mere world can offer you in praise. And so to have that purpose within work that is beyond uh, just this world and yet is gritty and grounded in this world, I think really is the only... It's the only answer that satisfies our yearning for the law, for the good life. 
Yeah, and then just finally, and just briefly, I'll hit on. Um, <clears throat> while work is often <clears throat> um, toil in a, in a good way that we can lose ourselves in it, uh, and while it's often toil in a bad way in that um, it comes with thorns and thistles, either way, at the end of the day, we also need rest. And the third commandment is a reminder of that, um, that we need rest and that we also need to hear the word. But especially in this respect, um, any doctor will tell you human beings need downtime. Mm-hmm. And and so that work is not to be uh, an incessant thing. Um, and, and that's hopefully something that we're aware of for ourselves, but also aware of for our neighbor uh, too. Maybe if we move on then, to property, what are we at time-wise now, Mike? We've got 16 minutes. Okay, not bad. Um, to property, business, and economics. And I'll just lead off by saying Luther somewhat understands the economic system of his own day, but he's not an economist, and so he doesn't have a very um, deep understanding of it. Luther would not have been able to fathom economic systems in our day, whether that have been Soviet you know, uh, Marxism, whether that be kind of Scandinavian type uh, socialism light. I, I, socialism is such a misunderstood term, so let's not read into that. Whether that be um, 18th, 19th, 20th, or 21st century capitalism, and all of those have been different. But uh, he would have especially seen economics, uh, the word economics kind of right comes from household for the Greek. It's, it's largely something that was carried out in the home or in the community. Now, times have obviously changed, and so we won't get a lot into economic systems, although the Christian does well to think about within them how he or she can best serve neighbor. And in a democracy, we do well to think about them for for what sort of system or policies best serve neighbor. Um, But there can be disagreement on that. You can have a hardcore free market person who thinks um, this best enables people to be able to provide for themselves, you can have someone on the flip side who thinks that the more government programs to help with this, uh, the better. And so we won't get into a debate on, on that now. Um, that's Mike and I can do that over a coffee sometime. Uh, but maybe if we talk especially about property. And uh, this is where it's interesting to look at what God has to say about property because sometimes it uh, it seems God is anti-property, right? Jesus says it's harder for a camel to pass through an, uh, the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. <coughs> Acts 1, they s- share their stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, the rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, sell your possessions. Um, I remember I, I was dating a girl uh, and um, we dated in high school and then uh, first year of college, she was going to a different college and I went back to visit her and said, hey, I'll go to class with you because it was like one of these big... It was a big public university and one of these big lecture halls where no one's going to notice you because there's like, must have been 100 plus mm-hmm. people in it. So I went, and it was something like, must have been a world religions class or something. And I remember the professor said Christians were the first communists. And he wasn't saying communists like Marxist mm-hmm. or anything like that. But I remember that made my ears per- perk up mm-hmm. like, what? And he was talking about acts that they shared things in common. And you look at something like that and you say, well, maybe Christians should be sharing everything in common. But remember that even there, they could only share what they had because they had private property. Um, for Luther, what's going to be especially important for showing that it is not sinful to have property is that the seventh commandment uh, commands us to respect our neighbor's property and to try to help uh, 
him or her <coughs> keep that property. And so it is not contrary to the scriptures to have property. In fact, Luther, uh, Althaus says, Luther bases the right of private property on the fact that every man must have something to use in performing the service which he owes his neighbor. So God has given us property precisely so that we can care for our neighbor, whether that neighbor be our spouse or our children um, or other relatives and loved ones, whether that uh, neighbor be someone we support through a, a charity or be someone in our life that we know is a need. Um, we support our neighbor through support of the church that they might uh, have word and sacrament. We support our neighbor through paying taxes uh, so that the government can build roads and um, you know, help fund health care for those in need and, and stuff like that. So property is not going to be contrary to the scriptures, although there will be warnings about property that we can abuse it or or treat it poorly. And so... Um, so God's not a capitalist or a Marxist or a socialist. Yeah, I mean, so Marxist is the most problematic. If we mean atheistic Marxism, then obviously <laughs> we're going to have problems with that. But um, Luther then says, in essence, that the uh, when he deals with property... And Altos says this is page 106. In the face of my neighbor's need, love removes the boundary between mine and yours, even though the law must establish the boundary for the sake of love itself. So while Mike and I legally have our own property, right? Um, and Mike even has filed his property and I've filed mine. The government knows what we have so they can tax it. Um, we fill out our census forms. We pay our property taxes. <clears throat> if one of us were in need... Love, like, removes, blurs those boundaries between mine and his so that we can help each other out. Uh, the problem with possessions or property comes then when it, love isn't capable of uh, removing those boundaries. So we are not to be inseparately bound to our property as if it is who we are or as if, like the rich young man, we would put that before God himself. And so that's something we want to keep in mind. When we talk about property or possessions, <clears throat> I mean, it's even when we talk about possessions, we often call them goods, mm-hmm. right? Well, they cease to be goods when they get in the way of my relationship with my neighbor or with God, rather than being vehicles for me to serve my neighbor um, and vehicles for me to experience and um, reflect the love of God, to experience the love of God and the fact that these are first article gifts that God has given, even though I don't deserve them, Um and then to reflect it in my use for others. Yeah, it's no longer good if you don't see it as a gift anymore, if you see it's something that you deserve and all that yeah, kind of Yeah, and so maybe good. anywhere you want to go with that, Mike, I just threw a lot out there, but... <laughs> yeah, I like the good thing. I thought I was thinking about that yesterday, just the fact that we call it good. Good's good, um, you know, related to the word God in a certain sense, that, that it comes from God and it is a gift. Um, so, you know, I'm looking at, uh, at your, your PowerPoints that you have used in, in the past here. Um, it comes, becomes tricky then. Um, well, let me, let me ask you a question that's total off topic. I've thought about this a lot that in, in the history of the, of the West, especially, I suppose. That oh, I thought it was gonna be a question about an animal fight. <laughs> property, um, is kind of your key to freedom. And I wonder if you, if you think about if I can, I can get that at times. I mean, you and I are not real handy guys. And so a house seems like a 
burden. You built some stuff, though. <laughs> yeah, but it seems like a burden more than freedom to me. But I get, you know, certain places, if you want to be a voter, you need to have own right. property and stuff like that. Um, but maybe there is a spiritual connection to if I tie myself too much to property. Um, like, I'm talking literally like land that you own. That um, if we set up a system where you're only valuable by how much property you have can be problematic. Um, and, and yet property is good and can be an avenue for good. Um, I, I don't just trying to think about that, wrap my head around the spirituality. Yeah. Of I it. mean, I think from a, a human flourishing aspect, uh, as you've kind of unpacked, um, it's hard for me to flourish without being able to meet my basic needs. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and yet at the same time, there's a reason that throughout much of history, there's been this impulse, um, to give up goods or for poverty among some of the historic saints, let's say in Catholicism, Mm -hmm. for instance, um, and, and people that Luther spoke well of even as well, uh, there's a sense in which they can also tie down. And so I think that's the important, uh, um, tightrope that we walk, right, is, if I if I have stability, it is often better for me to serve my neighbor. So knowing that I have shelter, that I have um, running water, that I have clothing, can be extremely helpful. But yeah, I think on the flip side, those things when they become the mean or they become our freedom itself, which in the West it sometimes has been viewed that way, um, then it can become a a new slavery. Yeah. And as we've mentioned before, you know the piling up of goods. I think is the way. Uh, that can be its and that's, own. You know, Jesus tells the parable of the man who piles up and then says, soul, now you can be at rest. And and, and we look at that and go selfish wrong, but I, I think we should also look at it as you're tying, you're tying yourself down to something. This is a slavery and it's, and you've made it your, your own, right? So again, the 10 commandments is not, you know, the, the moral law is not be a greedy jerk because that's bad for everybody else and immoral your soul. It's also God saying, Listen, you tie yourself to just trust me. You're you're not going to be fulfilled by this, right? And even the Greek philosophers knew all of them yeah. knew that, right? Especially the Stoics. The, especially the Stoics, but really it was it was already in Aristotle already. So I don't even know if we need Seneca. Right. <laughs> well, Seneca uh, was not very good at practicing. <laughs> um, I, can I make a profit though? I mean, I'm asking you that. How how much is, is too much of a profit? I mean, I look at it in the sense like it would be good for in our capitalistic world that you see your customers not as consumers, but you see them as neighbors, not just people, but neighbors. Um, but at the same time, my neighbors who are my customers, my clients through them, God is giving me a gift and it may be wealth. It may be extreme wealth. How do you balance that out, right? How, is it wrong to make a profit? What is too much of a profit? Like the the, the golden parachute of the CEO, you know? Uh, I mean, when what, tell me what the number is, Wade. What's the number before? Well, and I this become... is what's interesting. And I I sometimes will assign supplemental, supplementary readings in this um, section as well because there's some really interesting takes that people have when they read Luther. Luther himself was very skeptical of capitalism. You have kind of capitalism is beginning to develop as a thing and growing. And Luther famously is against usury, right? He he really has a hard time seeing 
interest. How made. you can charge interest and not have it be sinful. Now, today we would look at that and say, well, that charging of interest allows people to get homes and, mm-hmm. and transportation. and um, <clears throat> But at the same time, uh, you know, he struggled to wrap his head around some of these things with profit. And I think Luther can be helpful to read and to wrestle with then because it, even if we don't agree with him on everything, and in, in some ways he's very naive, right? Mm-hmm. We're just not all going to, according to, the, we can't run an economy based on the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think he does lead us to, to step back and ask, are we running our business if we run a business? Are we voting for economic policy for ourselves or for neighbor? Mm-hmm. And and I think that can be helpful to, to keep in mind. Something that I think I've become more thoughtful about with age, um, when it comes to how I think about politics and economic policy, is to try to ask, am I just, is this just for me here? Mm-hmm. Am I just voting for my pocketbook? Um, is this what's best for my neighbor? Is is this what's best for my kids, right? Um, and so I think he does ask, you know, help us step back and ask these big questions. Uh, in ethics, you know, sometimes for papers, I've never got a paper on this, but I've, I've told people this would be a fantastic paper. At what point is interest immoral? Like, at what level should the credit card company be able to charge interest? In poor neighborhoods when they set up these cash-and-go places, that only thrive because people are living hand to mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that is that ethical? Is that really good for our neighbor? Um, the and, answer is nineteen percent because that the credit cards stop at eighteen and a half. <laughs> yeah, and so and I'm not trying to. Um, I'm You're not, not giving an, an answer. I'm not an economist, but I think it. Those are things that are worth wrestling. Um, the business. Uh, you know at what at what at what point is. Um, is profit too much profit? At what point, you know, think of something like CEO pay. Should there be a cap on CEO pay? Now, I think most Christians in our circles would have kind of this reflective response of, well, well, no, this is, um, this is America. Mm-hmm. And I'm not advocating for or against it, to be honest. I haven't really formed a, a definite position on it. But on the flip side, there are countries that are capitalist, free market cap countries for the most part that do cap things in relationship to workers. At what point does it become problematic to have the CEO with the golden parachute and the success of pay and to have workers at the same time who are on subsistence wages or not even that? Well, I think there it becomes interesting for the Christian to wrestle with this. And, and and Christians may end up on different sides of things, but I think it's good questions you're asking. And I think that for a pastor, the way I thought about this was, I am not going to, certainly not in the pulpit, say this, that, or the other thing. But to get the Christian who is the CEO of a big business to start thinking vocationally, right? And you can make as much money as you want, fine. But the question becomes, have you been a good neighbor to your clients and to your uh, uh, to the people around you and to your employers, right? I mean, if you can go to bed at night saying, I, I, I did right by my employees and I still made a gazillion dollars, good for you. But um, the, 
if you're going to bed at night only thinking about your bottom line and your employees are only numbers or only means by which that you can be successful. And, and I don't think most people are going to bed thinking about their own personal bottom line. They're thinking about the bottom line of the company, right? But the company should not exist just to for shareholders. It should exist for shareholders and the employees and the customers and the environment around them, right? And so this is why when we when we think about vocation, especially for a business uh, person, that they have multiple neighbors in this, right? Um, uh, the CEO of a company has employers, customers, shareholders, and, and I'm not saying you ignore the shareholders, right? They got to make a profit because that's part of our economy as well. You have a duty to them. But if, you're, if your company is big enough, it could be everybody in the world because there may be uh, environmental or economic impacts on the decisions, decisions that you make. And that's why CEOs probably should get paid more than the rest of us because they, you know, there's some heavy questions there. Um, and I, I think we get to trouble if we, if we play neighbors off against each other, right? So if I'm only going to think about the, the worker in, in sort of a Marxist way kind of thing, I may kind of ruin the whole economy, right? <laughs> right, and everybody is going to get is is going to suffer. But if I'm only thinking about you know profits for my shareholders, that obviously is equally bad. And so it's tough. It's tough. And I think to I, I think we and and you think about just basically something like finance capitalism, where now you have whole industries whose business is making money off of money. Mm-hmm in which it can become even another step removed from neighbor from yeah. what the company produces, the workers, the people they're selling to. Um, yeah, in general, from neighbor, these are all worthwhile things for us to think about. And, and let's go back, full circle, back to like property, something that's physical or goods, the, the, the goods and stuff like that. I, I, think, I think you're right when, you know, l- listen, the, the finance world, right? So somebody is just, you know, a mortgage lender... A mortgage broker up in the the stratosphere. They never have ever met somebody who actually you know lives in the house. Um, the more you get away from a agricultural based society, now even if you get more uh, even away from like an industrialized manufacturing type society, um, the more difficult it becomes to carry out this vocation because as you said, there's layers upon layers of stuff before you actually get to a real person. Right. But, and so we're not saying that though, that, that this modern economy is wrong or evil. We're just saying it's more difficult to be virtuous in this, in, in, in an economy like ours. And I I think you probably would see because it's harder to find your neighbor in the midst of it. And, and so it's not just purely selfishness, although certainly, certainly there's greed involved in this, but, um, you know, if you had a chart of, you know, the, the more and more we become detached from neighbor, a sense of virtue goes down probably an equally uh, amount because you, you just don't have to ask those selves your questions. And so you can, you can say, I'm doing right by my, immediate neighbors, which is my boss or my shareholders, and not have a concern about the other neighbors. And part of it is because you don't see them. And so that's why we, we talk about the posture of being curved inward and curved outward. Curved inward, you don't see your neighbor, uh, but you're curved outward and you, you see your neighbor, even though you've seen them a gazillion times, but you see them in a new light. You see them for the very first time, perhaps, kind of thing. Yeah. You know? 
Oh, I think that that hits the the big stuff, Mike. So we can probably wrap it up with that. I will just remind students. Um, <clears throat> we won't worry about chapter eight right now. Um, you can read it if you want, but Althaus is. We've talked to kingdoms, and there's just better stuff out, this, out there in the state that we could look at. So your note should wrap up with this session and then with the reading of chapters 5 and 7. Um, we're going to have coming up another transition then, <coughs> excuse me, in the syllabus um, as we'll be making our way from theological ethics, ethics Luther's ethics, um, into something that is still uh, Christian in, in scope and focus, but a little bit different, this Christian faith and love section, then we'll continue with C.S. Lewis' book, um, The Four Loves. I have that broken up into three different days for you to be doing readings. Um, we will have one podcast episode on it, and we recorded that already in 2018. And I emailed that to you um, earlier this afternoon, the link to that. So you should be reading and taking notes on each set of your readings, um, but then just listening to that one podcast episode you don't have to listen to the free-for-all and the uh, um, scripture narrative for that. You can go ahead and skip to the main topic, although you're free to listen to the other things if you want. But you can skip. There are timestamps um, in the episode show notes for that that you can do. So that will take us um, to the C.S. Lewis um, Four Loves, and, and so that already is posted. We're then going to have Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. letter from a Birmingham jail, which I also think we may have mm -hmm, done mm -hmm. on the podcast. If we have, I will send out a similar link for that episode. <clears throat> and then we'll get into bioethics. Um, and I will either have videos or we will have podcast sessions on those for when we get there. But that kind of gives you the plan briefly for going forward. Um, and in the meanwhile, as you're, you're trying to figure out all your classes and different plans with each professor's uh, know that ultimately uh, God is in control and, and, and works through uh, even this for our good. And so go ahead and let the bird fly.